Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Lies. We all hear lies, tell lies, and deny that we lie. And yet there's very little difference between a truth and a lie. As just like a truth, a lie is just a very subtle shift in one person's perspective, used to protect ourselves or others from the truth. So really, one person's truth is just another person's lie. But then again, there's no such thing as the truth. It can never exist. As every single sentence, word or syllable we utter is riddled with a carefully calculated degree of emphasis, bias and belief. All of which is unconsciously rearranged and re-edited to suit our own needs, goals and opinions. Fibs, untruths and little white lies are part of our daily vocabulary. It's the difference between a person who is dull, poetic, creative, or a visionary, with a very fine line between what is fantasy and reality. Lies are harmless, fibs are fun, and everything we say is spun. But the second that lying becomes second nature, and the fantasist begins to believe their own lies as the truth, those lies can become deadly. On the 8th of November 1949, following a series of failed abortion attempts and in a fit of depression, 20-year-old pregnant mother of one, Beryl Evans, committed suicide by gassing herself. Fearing the suspicion would fall upon her abusive husband, a heavy drinker, a terrible liar, and a known fantasist whose fiery bust-ups with his wife had been reported to the police. Timothy Evans destroyed any evidence, packed up, moved out and fled, knowing that he would be blamed for her death. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspective. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part four of the full true and untold story of the other side of Tenrillington Place. Today, I'm standing outside of the Kensington Park Hotel at 139 Ladbroke Grove, directly opposite what was David Griffin's refreshment room, and one street east of the Thorley's family home at 112 Cambridge Gardens. Tim's mum's house at number 11 St Mark's Road and the final flat of Beryl and Tim Evans on the second floor of Tenvillington Place. Built in 1866 as a purpose-built public house, the KPH is an eye-wateringly beautiful four-storey British boozer with a rich wood-panelled facade, a twin saloon door and an oil-burning lantern on the outside with the inside thick with traditional period details, like brass fittings, ornate pillars, moulded cornices, bottle balustrades, 
a central bar island, and fitted out with a luncheon room, a billiard hall, a theatre, and has created in 1929 a discreet ablution facility for the ladies. And as one of London's oldest live music venues, where Welsh crooner Tom Jones played his first city gig, punk band The Clash hung out. Notorious fascist Oswald Mosley staged his ill-fated 1958 election bid, and where, it is rumoured, a small, softly spoken serial killer once served behind the bar. The KPH is a great pub, where generations of legends have sat, supped pints, and spouted bullshit about sport. Sadly, it's now boarded up, as the £3.2 million property is about to be turned into yet another bloody gastropub, where bearded dickheads in dungarees swig pints the size of thimbles, smarmy gits in red trousers quaff vegan fry-ups served on a coal miner's shovel, and tosspots in tiny hats pose for selfies in front of their Ponzi dindins, tweeting about how amazeballs it is, even though it's just a piece of toast drenched in oil, slopped with hummus, and smeared in avocado. Instead of remaining a good, honest, local pub, frequented by salt-of-the-earth heroes. Better out than in. And yet, it was here, in the autumn of 1949, that over a few pints, 24-year-old Timothy Evans would regale his chums with a stream of rather fanciful stories. But having forgotten how to tell the truth, his impulse to lie would cost him his life. On Wednesday the 30th of November 1949, at 3.10pm, in the sleepy Welsh village of Merthyr Vale, a tired and dishevelled Timothy Evans entered the local police station, stating, I want to give myself up. I have disposed of my wife. Taken aback, Detective Constable Glynfren Evans asked, Do you realise what you're saying, sir? To which Evans replied, Yes, I know what I'm saying. I can't sleep. I want to get it off my chest. And over the next two hours, he gave the following statement. October time, my wife Beryl told me that she was about three months gone. I said another won't make any difference. She told me she was going to get rid of it. I told her not to be silly that she would make herself ill. On the Monday morning, she told me if she couldn't get rid of the baby, that she'd kill herself and our baby Jellodine. I told her she was talking silly. I then went to work, loaded up my van and I went on my way. That morning, I pulled up to a cafe between Ipswich and Colchester. I can't say exactly where. I ordered a tea, and there was a man sitting opposite me. He said, You look worried. So I told him about it. He said, Oh, don't worry. I can give you something to fix that. And he handed me a little bottle wrapped in brown paper. He said, Tell your wife to take it first thing in the morning, and then lay down for a couple of hours. He never asked any money for it. I paid my bill and went on my way. When I got home, my wife found the bottle. But I, I told her not to take the stuff. The next evening, after work, I went home and I noticed there was no lights on. So I went into the bedroom to get a penny. I then saw my wife lying on the bed. I shook her but she wasn't breathing. About one or two in the morning, I got my wife downstairs. I opened the front door to turn the lint in place, and I pushed her body headfirst into the drain. After that, I got my baby looked after, I quit my job, I'd sold my furniture, I told my mother that my wife and baby had gone on a holiday, and then I caught the train to Martha Vale, and I've been here ever since. And that's the lot. In this statement, he would admit to aiding his wife's death, procuring an abortion, 
and the unlawful burial of her body. Two months later, Timothy John Evans would be charged with murder. It was a confession which would end his life. But the trouble had began almost two decades earlier. Life for Timothy John Evans started badly even before he was born. Abandoned by his father, Daniel Evans, whilst Thomasina was still pregnant, Tim was a small, pale and sickly little boy, raised in a village full of burly men who hauled coal at the Merthavale Colliery, and so he would always feel like an outcast. Born on the 20th of November 1924, at 50 Mount Pleasant, a tiny, two-storey coal miner's cottage in a rural Welsh village on the banks of the River Taff. Tim's early life was a struggle, and with Thomasina being a single mother, times were hard. But being a strong, sturdy woman, living in a tight-knit community, with many families, like the Lynches, the Proberts and the Evanses, related by marriage or birth, she remarried, rebuilt her family, and just like at number 11 St. Mark's Road, she gave her babies strength, love and stability. And yet, she would always struggle with Tim, an unruly boy who life had cursed. Always being shorter, smaller and weaker, Tim was mercifully bullied by the other boys. And having struggled to speak properly before the age of five, even his teachers saw him as a backwards child. At school, Tim wasn't a good scholar, as being slow-witted, hot-tempered and easily duped by the older boys, he often got into trouble. And having an abnormal IQ of just 65 and the mental age of an 11-year-old, being barely literate, Tim would struggle to read and write, choosing instead to dive into comic capers like the Beano and the Dandy, wild adventures like Boyzone, or fantasy sci-fi like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. But by the age of nine, Tim's limited education would be cut short. Whilst bathing in the River Taff, Tim impaled his big toe on a hidden shard of broken glass, a harmless boyhood injury which is easily repaired. But having bound his bloody foot in a dirty hanky, by the time Tim hobbled his way from Mount Pleasant to the doctor in the neighbouring village of Merthyr Vale, the small cut had gone septic and would leave him with a lifetime of sickness, absence, pain and a permanent limp. Later contracting tuberculosis, Tim spent a whole year isolated at the Moreland Clinic for Children in Hampshire, hundreds of miles away from his family. And being a small lonely boy, with a low IQ, a bad lung, a disabled foot, and a deep feeling of inferiority, being blessed with a vivid imagination, Tim began to twist the truth of his humdrum life into a fantasy world where he was rich, smart and successful. But lacking the intelligence to sustain such a bold story, even Tim's own mum branded him as a terrible liar. By the outbreak of World War II, eager for excitement, Tim tried to enlist in the armed forces, but was rejected from national service on medical grounds. Aged 15, Tim worked as a van boy at the Merthavale Colliery. And by 17, he was a driver for the Air Ministry, having settled with his family at number 11 St Mark's Road. But being regarded as unreliable, highly strung and a fiery liar with a string of bad debts, his work history was patchy as he drifted from jobs as a coal haulier, a car cleaner and a factory worker. Being easily duped, in April 1946, Tim received two criminal convictions, one for driving an unlicensed car and one for receiving stolen goods. Both resulted in fines. 
and although his exasperated mother supported her unruly son with a bed, money, meals, and endless love, often being unemployed and always being broke, with no hobbies or interests to engage him, every evening, over a few pints, as he propped up the bar at the Kensington Park Hotel, Tim would wax lyrical and regale the locals with tall tales and fanciful fibs of how he lived the life of a gigolo, how his absent father was an Italian count, and how his fictional brother owned a fleet of limousines. So with her patience wearing thin, it must have seemed like a blessing for Thomasina when in 1947 her boy met and married a lovely girl called Beryl Thorley, who later gave birth to a beautiful baby girl called Geraldine. This should have been the makings of Tim as a grown-up and a man. But with deceit coming a second nature, having falsely claimed his daughter was gravely ill to acquire a loan, pretended he hadn't been sacked for three whole weeks to save on marital spats, and having kept up the pretense to his wife and lodger that he was starting a new career as a manager at de Havilland Airlines, a job which didn't even exist. Tim was a born liar, who was incapable of the truth. By Monday the 7th of November 1949, with arguments being a daily event, debt stacking up, and Beryl feeling pale, weak and depressed after several failed abortions, what the Evans needed was honesty. But Tim wasn't the only liar and fantasist living at 10 Rillington Place. The next day, Beryl told my wife she was going to get a separation. My wife and I agreed that, if she needed us to, we would adopt the baby. It was then, at a later date, that Beryl told me she was going to make an end of it. In short, she was going to commit suicide. After Beryl's death and Tim's arrest, Ridge Christie made that statement to the police. Except none of it was true. On Monday the 31st of October 1949, eight days before Beryl's death, Raymond Phillips and Frederick Jones of Larcher and Sons were contracted to repair a leaky bay window and the roof of the communal wash house. It was a simple job undertaken during the weekdays, which shouldn't have disturbed the tenants. But with Ethel stuck at home, Beryl feeling blue, Geraldine all restless, and Reg off sick with fibrositis and bouts of diarrhoea, the constant banging and hammering had left 10 Rillington Place in total disarray. As the baby wailed the whole house down with a constant cacophony of tired tears, Beryl didn't hear his soft plimp soles as they slowly crept up the creaking stairs. Then again, she never did. But as Reggie's egg-like head peeped around the open door, having an almost comical face, with over-prescribed spectacles, slipping false teeth, and a softly cooing voice which often soothed Geraldine. Clutching two steamy mugs of tea, Reg cooed, I wondered if you fancied a cup of tea, dear. He did this most days, and with Beryl being alone, she appreciated his company, his chats, and his friendship. Reg could see Beryl wasn't her usual self. She was always such a pretty young girl, but with her flawless brow wrinkled by a deep frown, her smooth skin all sickly and pale, her baby blue eyes red raw from crying, and her supple figure hidden by a shapeless mass of crumpled clothes. What the innocent 20-year-old needed, Reg thought, was a father's love and protection. Over the eight months she'd lived there, Beryl and Reg had developed a good relationship. 
he was a very patient man who cared and listened. And having pacified her hot-tempered husband, after several of the couple's regular rows, covered the cost of their furniture fees to keep the bailiffs at bay, snapped a much-loved family portrait of mother and baby, which hung on her wall, and being medically trained, Beryl knew that Reg was experienced, trusted, and best of all, knowledgeable. And as she opened up to him about her innermost secrets, about the arguments, the lies, the debts, her struggles with motherhood, her unexpected second pregnancy, and her several failed abortions, with the baby's termination being a tricky topic, and Beryl and Tim often at each other's throats, Reg agreed to speak to Tim on Beryl's behalf. And for the first time in weeks, Beryl smiled. It was my wide knowledge of medicine which made it possible for me to talk convincingly about sickness and disease. And she readily believed that I could cure her. That night, having finished his shift at nearby Lancaster Food Products, as promised, Reg had a man-to-man chat with Tim in the privacy of his front room. And being a boy whose dad had abandoned him before he was even born, Tim appreciated this fatherly advice. This was, after all, John Reginald Halliday Christie, a happily married man, 29 years to be precise, who for nine of those years had deserted his wife. A former special constable, commended twice, having helped arrest a man who had stolen a bicycle. And a decorated war hero, awarded the British War and Victory Medal, which every serving soldier received, regardless of their conduct. But then again, Tim didn't know any of that. So as Reg sat there, flanked by two framed medical certificates, and knowing that the barely literate Tim wouldn't know that they were only for first aid, as he thumbed through a thick medical book, and knowing that the easily duped Tim wouldn't know that it was only a St. John's ambulance manual, and regaling him with tales of how his training as a doctor was cruelly cut short by the Great War, all of which was a lie. But then again, whereas Tim lacked the intelligence to maintain a story, Reg did not. And claiming to have a wide knowledge of abortions, Reg coerced Tim into letting him perform a termination on his pretty petite wife. All the while, laying the blame squarely on the young couple and stating, If only you or your wife had come to me in the first place, I could have done this without any risk. And extending the cautious caveat that, given the risky procedure, one out of seven women die. Being physically tired, emotionally torn, and with his brain thoroughly bamboozled, Tim said he would have to sleep on it. But being a young couple, unable to afford a new baby, they had only one option. And Christy knew that. On the morning of Tuesday the 8th of November 1949, after a restless night, Beryl and Tim washed, dressed, fed Geraldine, and as Tim sat at the kitchen table, having a smoke, he exhaled deeply and said, Tell Mr Christie, everything's okay. And although a great weight dropped off Beryl's shoulders, in those six simple words, Tim sealed the fate of their unborn baby and condemned them both to death. And as he kissed his wife goodbye, little did he know that this was the last time he would see her alive. After the chaos of the last eight days, with the bay window finally fixed, and the roof of the wash house replaced, with only one plasterer remaining, normality had been restored to Rillington Place. As Ethel dozed by the toasty fire, Reg rummaged through a small brown suitcase, 
It didn't contain much, just a few odd knickknacks, like a necklace, a hairbrush, a stocking, a handbag, and a dog-eared photo of a young pretty girl holding a baby. And as he softly stroked her image, after eight months of patience and persistence, he imagined what it would be like to finally touch Beryl. It was 10.30am, and with Ethel asleep, Ridge returned the suitcase under the sofa, having retrieved four little items. A length of rope, a bottle of Friar's balsam, two rubber hoses, and a square glass jar. For the last time, Beryl placed her baby in the cot for a mid-morning nap, tucked the soft sheet up to her chin, and kissed her rosy cheeks. As always, Beryl didn't hear his soft plimsolls creep up the creaky stairs, or feel his hot breath on her neck as he lurked on the second floor landing. But seeing the reassuring smile, and hearing the soft voice of a trusted friend, who whispered, I thought you might like a cup of tea. Seeing Reg made Beryl's beautiful smile return. And as they entered the flat, so they wouldn't be disturbed, he locked the door. Beryl stood there, all hopeful and nervous, dressed in a blue woolen jacket with black stitching, a blue and white spotted cotton blouse, and a black skirt. As she trembled, her heart thumping fast and hard. From her bedroom, Ridge pulled a thick quilt, laid it on the kitchen floor in front of the unlit fire, and with the bedside manner of a doctor, he said, Let's get you comfortable, shall we? As his patient, she was in his hands, and so trusting him implicitly, at his command, she slipped off her stockings, slid off her knickers and lay on the quilt, her legs parted, her genitals exposed. Beside her, Ridge popped the square glass jar. It sloshed with a white liquid which smelled like the minty balm she would rub on her baby's chest whenever she was ill. This was all very strange and new to Beryl, but as he attached the long rubber hose to the copper pipe at the side of the fire, she trusted him, as Reg reassured her, Nothing to worry about, dear. It's just a whiff of gas, like going to the dentist. And as he placed the shorter hose next to her nose, at his command, Beryl breathed deeply. And just like Muriel Edie, as her lungs filled with lethal levels of carbon monoxide, she would willingly render herself unconscious. And soon, Beryl Evans would be his. To grope, to kiss, to fondle, to fuck. Startled by the knocking, Reg froze. With Tim out at work, the lone plasterer by the wash house, and Ethel in the front room, it could only be one other person. Her friend, Joan Vincent. Beryl! But hoping she would leave... Reg remained still and silent. Beryl! Hearing her friend's voice, Beryl began to stir. In panic, Reg smothered her lips with his rough hands, muffling her words. Beryl, are you there? As her legs kicked, her arms flailed, and she frantically gasped for air. Before she could muster enough strength to scream, Reg punched her hard in the face knocking her out cold. Beryl, if you don't want to open the door, that's fine. And as Joan Vincent descended the creaky stairs, with both ends of his strangling rope clutched in his hands, Ridge pulled tight, and the last drop of life left Beryl's body forever. With no privacy to do his dirty deed, as Joan chatted to Ethel just two floors below, Reg dragged Beryl's body into the unlit bedroom, and although her mouth and nose was bloodied, 
slowly forming a plan. He masked the long dark bruise around her neck with the top of the quilt and left her in bed just a few feet from Geraldine. On Wednesday the 30th of November 1949, at 3.10pm, a tired and dishevelled Timothy Evans walked into Merthervale Police Station and confessed to disposing of his wife's body by stating, About one or two in the morning, I opened the front door to Tenerillington Place and I pushed her body headfirst into the drain. After that, I got my baby looked after, I quit my job, I'd sold my furniture, I told my mother that my wife and baby had gone on a holiday, and then I caught the train to Martha Vale, and I've been here ever since. And that's the lot. But as a regular drinker, an abusive husband, and a known fantasist, his heartfelt confession didn't ring true. And having lied to Thomasina that his wife and child were on holiday in Brighton, lied to Uncle Con and Auntie Vi that he was on a business trip to Wales, lied to a furniture dealer, a pawnbroker and a rag trader about why he was selling all of his and his wife's possessions, having lied to the Christies about why they had so hastily moved out of Rillington Place, and having discovered Beryl's body, not down the drain, but hidden in the communal washhouse, bundled in a green tablecloth and tied with a length of clothesline, with the autopsy confirming that no interference had taken place which was consistent with an abortion. Police knew that Timothy Evans had lied about his wife's death. As it was clear, the 20-year-old Beryl Evans had died by strangulation. And so had Geraldine. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you enjoyed parts one to four, part five of The Other Side of Ten Rillington Place continues next Thursday. And if you're a murky miler, please stay tuned for some more wibbly gob dribble after the break. But before that, here's my recom- recommended here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are Point Blank, a true crime podcast, and the Lady Killers podcast. Welcome to Point Blank True Crime Podcast. This podcast will cover stories on murder, disappearances, mass shootings, mysteries, and all things true crime. If you're interested in listening, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Now back to your scheduled program. anything. They can be scientists, lawyers, lumberjacks, and yes, even killers, drug lords, and kingpins. If you live for true crime and aren't so secret about your feminist agenda, check out the Lady Killers podcast with your hosts Kelly Megan and Bryn Mack as they delve into the often overlooked world of the women in true crime. Kelly and Bryn are just a couple of murder buffs, feminists, and friends who want to spread the word that serial killers are not cute. They're not. Join them every Tuesday as they look into the crimes of the world's most dangerous women, while also discussing societal issues that women may face. Available on most major podcast platforms everywhere, and as always, don't play with Mercury, and don't murder people. A special thank you this week to Trevor Williams, who very kindly made a much-needed donation to keep the Murder Mile True Crime podcast afloat via the Murder Mile website. Thank you, Trevor. You're a superstar. And a special thank you to anyone who has recently left a review on iTunes or any podcast provider. It really is very much appreciated. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Thank you. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Did that scare you? You didn't crash the car, did you? I hope not. Don't want to be held responsible for you crashing your car. Although it is your choice. If you decide, if you decide to listen to podcasts while you, whilst you're driving, <laughs> up to you really, isn't it? Up to you. Personally, I would prefer to listen to podcasts whilst uh, I'm somewhere nice and quiet or peaceful. But it's up to you. It's entirely your choice. Uh, so if there are any loud noises... Nothing I can do about that. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. Uh, as always, if you're new to Extra Mile, this is the extra bit at the end of the show, which is not scripted. Uh, no sound effects, no music. Oh, it's barely held together by a couple of notes. But uh, it just gives you a bit more of an insight into the episode you've just listened to. Uh, it's not compulsory at all. You can switch off now. You probably already have. You probably got to the bit where the adverts were and you're like, ah, balls to this uh but this is the extra bit this is the bit that people seem to enjoy i don't know why i don't know why people seem to enjoy this bit because uh, it's just waffle it's just waffle this is the bit that takes me no time at all the first bit takes bloody ages the second bit takes no effort and yet you oh, i should just do extra mile shouldn't i i should just do extra mile from now on just episodes of extra mile where i just oh, i'm gonna do a new podcast called michael's waffle <laughs> where for an hour I waffle. And then people can enjoy that. God, that would be great if I could make money off just waffling. To be honest, let's be honest, there are a lot of podcasts out there, and some of them, some of them are waffle. Oh, God, I've de- I've unsubscribed from so many because there's... Oh, people who think they're funny. That's the worst thing, isn't it? People who go, ah, uh, here's my podcast, and this, this, we're going to sit down and have some beers, and we're going to chat with my friend who thinks he's hilarious, and he's like, no, you're not funny, you're not funny at all, you just think that you're funny, oh, anyway, anyway, um, <laughs> we're going to dive into the extra bits for this podcast, uh, for this extra mile, uh, as you can probably hear, I've got a bit of a tea on the go, so I'm waiting for that to boil, that's going to boil, that's going to finish boiling at the, the most inappropriate moment, but there we go, um, so where am I now? I think I mentioned last week that I was uh, in a place that I like to refer to as Burglar's Paradise over in East London. Uh, I'm still in Burglar's Paradise at the moment. Haven't been burgled yet. That's good. Thank you very much. Uh, Because I've been very clever. I leave a lot of lights on. When I go out, I leave all my lights on. So it looks like I'm in. I also leave a radio on. Uh, Although my lights are always on when I'm in as well. And the radio's on. So it's hard to tell when I'm in. Uh, But... I'm about to move now to what I like to refer to as Mugger's Paradise. So I'm going from Burglar's Paradise to Mugger's Paradise. But I need to get across to West London before the new year, before the start of the new year, because they're about to um, uh, repair a a bridge. So I need to get through there before they shut down the bridge. Hang on. Tease up. Ooh, how? Just splash some water on my... uh my foot uh yeah no they're um they're repairing a bridge 
And because there's only really one canal in London, it's not like Venice where you have loads of canals, or Birmingham where there's loads of canals. You only have uh, one canal, really, which is, uh, you've got the Regent, uh, sorry, the uh, Grand Union Canal, which goes north to south, and then through London it becomes the Grand Union and the Regent's Canal. Oh, I've got rid of my bin bag. What an idiot. Um, and then it goes north on the River Lee, but the bit through the main part of town really is just the Regent's Canal and the Grand Union. Uh, and the Hereford Arm, which I'm on at the moment, which is tiny and pointless. Uh, so when they when they shut parts of the canal down, you're kind of stuck. You can't really go anywhere. And I need to get west to do repairs on the boat. So that's why I need to get through town, past that bridge in the west of London, uh, by the 2nd of January. And I've got... oh. I've got about 12 miles to go and about nine locks to do. Uh, so I'm going to take my time. But because they're fixing the bridge and that'll take two months to fix the bridge and then there's a lock that they're repairing as well. And because I can't double back on myself, I can't rush ahead too far ahead too quickly. Otherwise, I'll be stuck in a part of the West that I don't want to be and I can't double back on myself. So you have to, you have to pre-plan. Whew, that was exciting, wasn't it? So, so yeah, so I'm moving in about... In a, as soon as I finish this, I'm going to be moving the boat. Hooray. Cup of tea on the go. Uh, haven't got a cake today. Instead, I've got a mince pie. I know. So by the time you're listening to this, when's it, what's this? Part four. So this is probably going to go out whew, around the 12th of December, I think. Yeah. Uh, this is November. I'm recording this 28th of November. So I'm having... I'm, this is my fourth mince pie. It's Christmas. Might as well get into the spirit of it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, got to be done. Uh, yeah, no, so I'm t- deliberately trying to keep myself ahead of the game at the moment. So hopefully I can have a couple of days off over Christmas. The last thing I want to do is ed- be editing over Christmas. Although I'm, ju- I'm trying to make sure that there's no break in your schedule. So you know, every Thursday is, uh, every Thursday, you know, is Murder Mile Day. Uh, so I deliberately tried not to break that because there's nothing worse. Obviously, it happens. We all have lives and stuff, and it, it happens to podcasters. But I, I, I want to make sure that it doesn't happen. I want to make sure that I can go up and sort out my nan, go and see my mum, go and see my brother and my brother and his family, and uh, stay with my dad, and my stepmom for a bit, and then, and then hopefully I won't be behind schedule. Pwah. Right. Uh, other side of Ten Relinton Place. Okay. Um, I know this was, <laughs> if you listen to the extra mile at the end of Blackout Ripper, you'll be used to this by now. Uh, <laughs> this It was going to be an eight-part series. I think last week I said it was going to be a nine-part series because I'm going to do an episode on the life of Reg Christie, all the, all the bits I can't get in, because there's a lot of really interesting details that I know I won't be able to get into the story, so I need to get in. Um, this is going to be a ten-parter now uh, because... This episode was going to be a much, a much longer... It wasn't going to be a much longer episode. I was going to try and get a lot more into the story, into the Timothy Evans story, to get into the Timothy Evans trial and all the details about, about the murder of Beryl. And obviously now you know about the murder of uh, murder and death of Geraldine. So baby Geraldine is dead. Um, I was going to try and get all that into one episode, but I couldn't get it all in. It was just too much to cram in. So I thought, let's let's leave... Let's leave uh, Tim's uh, testimony. Let's make that the focus of the story. Uh, Tim's back history, so we know that he's a fantasist and a liar, and he's uh, got a bit of a drink problem, and he's an abusive person. But well, he's uh, uh, verbally abusive, really, not massively physically abusive. He's not. Occasionally, he'd lash out. But this is like a, a real rarity. So it's it's not to say that he's a, he's an abusive man. It's just he's, he's more same same as Beryl. He's more all mouth, no trousers. Uh, but they would spark off each other, and that would kind of you know they'd goad each other equally as bad. So um, uh, what was I saying? So yes. So uh, so um, next week I'm going to do. Uh, next week was going to be uh, we were going to move on and do another murder, but next week is going to be uh, the conclusion of this part of Ten Willing to Place about Tim's story and Beryl's story and the death of Geraldine, and that leaves us. I've deliberately done that because that leaves us free for the week after's episode, which was going to be a combination of Tim's trial and the next murder, but I've decided that the next murder after this really does need its own space. 
so that's why I've kind of fleshed it out. But the other ones after that, we'll, we'll go back to be kind of a, a weekly story about each victim. But this is kind of the, this is kind of a, an interesting point in the ten reel into place. This is this is the classic depiction of ten reel into place. This is the bit that everyone focuses on. Is the is the uh, Tim Beryl and uh, Reg kind of triangle. Uh, so I'm doing my own perspective on this, my own different variation, and then we'll go back to the stuff that everyone ignores, which is all the other murders. Um, so we'll be doing that. So I uh, hope you're enjoying it. It's uh, having a bit of a bit of fun writing this. Uh, I love doing these these multi-parters. They're, they're good fun because everything has its each episode has its own different kind of quirk. So when I'm writing uh, a, a one-off episode, they're a real pig. Because you have to go through all of the evidence again and rethink. Like, this could be stuff that I've researched months ago. So I have to re-go through it and re-remember the case. And then re-go through it and try and find all the points. And then you have to find what the people are about. What their story is about. What their personal journey is. You try and tell their story. And then you write it that way. And then as soon as I finish recording that, I'm moving on to the next story while I'm editing the that one. So it's like, oh, I've got to forget who they are and move on to the next one. Whereas a multi-parter is great because it's like, it gives me the chance to go, oh, yeah, like I can become Reg, which is feeling a little weird. Sometimes I'm I'm thinking too much like Reg or thinking too much like Tim or, but also it's nice because I'm, I can become the victims as well. Uh, but the... Oh, what's the downside to it? What was I saying about the downside? I can't remember. I forgot what I was going to say. It was some, something really important important about the downside of uh doing the same case every week oh yeah no it's trying to remember everything that's a difficult thing if it's a 10-part series and this is going to be like all combined when i do the omnibus edition of this which doesn't have extra mile in it this i reckon this will be about six hours so this this is longer than the film and the bbc tv series combined what what this the other side of 10 went into place so it's it's a lot of information that's in there so trying to remember stuff from part one and remembering that it needs to go this bit needs to go into part nine and da 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 is can be a real pig it's, it's difficult to remember where everything is and what it's all about and oh dear but it's good fun because sometimes i sometimes i start writing things and then i, I remember something from part, episode one and i go oh yeah part one and i go oh yeah that hang on that needs to come back here we'll return to that so uh, but then again, there are there are bits and pieces in this story that I've had to make a little file called "not used yet" because <laughs> it's, stu- it's stuff that I'm like, oh, that should go in. They go, ah, yeah, hang on, hmm, where am I going to put that? There's stuff that I've moved and moved and moved all the way through. There's there's like the, with the skull of Muriel Edie, that was all going to be in one episode, uh, and then I, it's kind of been. The Mural Edie story is being stretched slightly over and over. And as Ruth the first story will start coming back as well. So, uh, yeah, there's bits and pieces that need to return. I've got to remember where they all are. Unfortunately, I don't have a wall. I don't have a, everything plastered on the wall. It's just, it's either on files on my laptop or it's in my head. Most of it's in my head. Uh, uh, oh, aircraft going past. Lovely had to compete with that all day and oh and coot as well coot was having a massive fight with some other coot outside and they were bashing each other against the side of my boat and because the boat is made of steel it makes a real echo when it, it makes a real thunk when they uh and they, and they go for it they really do go for it uh and it's it, it's not romance time either it's winter i don't know what they're having a sp- i think they're just having a territorial spat uh as they do that's coots for you so i thought i'd uh go through some details in the case uh, obviously, this was a Timothy Evans case. I'm not going to say too much about the Timothy Evans case or, say, the autopsy stuff for burial. A burial? 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 Burial. Because um, we'll be do- dealing with most of that in next week's episode. That will be very much we've focused on uh, Reg's depiction of Beryl's death. we focused on Tim's perspective of Beryl's death. Next week, we'll focus on what really the truth is so we can filter out what was Tim's lies and what's christie's warped perspective that's what i've been trying to go for aim for with this with this case is really not just focusing on what everyone thinks is the truth focusing on what the variations of the truth are because i think with this case there's there's more there's more truth in the lies and more lies in the truth 
You know, everything's because because there's so few witnesses to each of these events, and most of them are Reg, and he's dead, and he's a fantasist. It's hard to work out what the truth is, but sometimes he lets out the truth. Sometimes the truth creeps out uh, in between the lies. So. Uh, just because he, he he doesn't have a consistent recollection of what's going on, and he, he believes this warped perspective of how these women fancy him and how they see him, and that he's uh, adorable. And obviously, he is. Well, I'm sure you ladies are getting very excited when I mention about his slipping false teeth. Fwa, <laughs> hot. <laughs> I might do that soon. Make some little badges with Reg on it, with his slipping false teeth and just the words hot. Uh, although I am thinking about doing some extra murder mile mugs at the moment, let me know if you think these are interesting. Uh, I'm planning to do a murder mile mug with a picture of Reg Christie on it, with the tagline "I prefer it if you call me Reg." Fancy doing that? Uh, I've got another one with Dennis Nielsen, one that just goes just just underneath, just says "Oh Dennis." Uh, if you've been on my walking tour, you'll understand what what "Oh Dennis" means. Uh, and another one, oh Blackout Ripper. I'm thinking about doing a mug with a blackout ripper on it, but it just says the real ripper, not the not Jack the Ripper, which is bullshit. Obviously, blackout ripper is the real ripper, proper ripper. You know, uh, that's why I tell everyone on my tour. And if you've listened to the blackout ripper uh, episodes, you'll understand why. That really is a proper ripper story. Right. So uh, this case, okay. Swig of tea. Sorry about that. Um, gotta have my cup of tea um so uh again as with the other murders uh reg made various statements about the murder of beryl evans obviously we've already had the version where he said it was a suicide this was the version the later version where he uh, wait uh i'm using a lot of the evidence here based on what it was but when he gave many later statements to the police uh Sometimes he said he strangled her with a stocking that he found in the room, which made sense because she had taken her stockings off, so there were stockings nearby, that makes sense. But also he said that he strangled her using his strangling rope, which was the length of rope from the back of the deck chair. Now, because we don't know which one it is, because uh, the if it was a stocking, that would have been burnt in the fire, because he said he threw it into the fire, but then later on Tim lit a fire, which means the stocking is burnt. Or if it's the strangling rope, the strangling rope was disposed of later on. So we don't know. So so to keep this consistent with the Ruth first and the Muriel Edie story, I've stuck with the rope. Uh, but it, it 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 could easily have been a stocking. We will never know that. So I, I've 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 uh, used one version of this just just to keep it consistent. Uh, there are mixed messages in Christie's statement. Why have I put this here? Uh, what am I reading? What am I reading? Uh... Oh yeah, no, we've already said that she he reckons he strangled with the stocking. Why have I put this here? It's ugh. oh yeah, no. So this was it. This was the classic Christie. So remember before I said that he, he is very he's very specific about very certain things but he's very uncertain about other things that he should be more specific about he he kind of weaves around and this was one of the um statements that he made about the murder of uh Beryl Evans so I won't do it in his voice but he says uh when I left uh Evans in the bedroom that Tuesday evening uh, he did not know that his wife had been strangled he thought she had gassed herself I don't know when he first found out that his wife had been strangled I never mentioned it to him I never had intercourse with Mrs. Evans at any time. I feel certain I strangled Mrs. Evans with a stocking. I did it because she appealed to me to help her commit suicide. This is obviously the earlier version. Um, I've got it in the back of my mind that there was some other motive, but I'm not clear about it. I'm going to leave that in bit because that kind of spoils a bit for later on. Uh, and obviously, um, uh, if if you... Look at like the, the the TV series or the film series or a lot of books and stuff like that. There, a lot is made about the fact that there were builders on site at the time of the murder. But it's not entirely true. I think a, a lot of people, when they piece together this case, they say that you know, building work started on the 31st of October and it finished on the 8th of November. Um, 
Oh, no, sorry, technically it finished on Wednesday the 9th of November. Sorry, so it was it was there for quite a while. But when you go through all the details and you check it carefully, the builders weren't there on the Monday, uh, the 7th, which was the day when Christie said Beryl Evans first tried to commit suicide, which obviously she didn't. Uh, there were no builders there that day because the, the, it was really bad weather. And the, on the Tuesday, when the murder did, did play take place uh, it was only frederick jones that was left and he was he was um he was plastering so there's only actually one builder there there was only two on site at all times so a lot is made of the fact that the builders were there but they weren't on the second floor they had no reason to go up to the second floor uh they'd finished the bay window so <coughs> the the only thing they were dealing with was in the back garden right next to the two bodies of muriel Edie, and uh, ruth first but never mind uh, <laughs> um, there's also a little bit of confusion in Joan Vincent's statements as well uh, now this does happen a lot when you're going through people's statements I think a lot of people go oh well it's a witness statement so it must be accurate um, but the problem is oh, witness statements are often wrong especially if uh, people are coming back to them years later so with Joan Vincent she said um, that she called at boat going past with a really rough engine god yeah listen to that may get some oil oh it's a yogurt pot it's a crappy plastic yogurt 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 cot yogurt cot yogurt pot yogurt pot i can't even speak today what is i've had this all day while trying to record a yogurt pot as we call them in the little plastic boats uh so um what Joan Vincent said is that on 10.30am on Monday the 7th of November, which was the day when uh, Beryl attempted the first suicide, according to Christie, she went to knock on the door. The The front door was open. She went upstairs. Um, uh, she went to the, uh, the, the bedroom door was uh, unlocked, which was where uh, Geraldine was. She was fast asleep in the cot. Um, Joan Vincent went to try the kitchen door, which was where Beryl and Reg would have been. Uh, she heard a noise and she did all the, Beryl, are you there? Beryl, are you there? Um, if you don't want me to come in, uh, you know, I I'll leave. That's fine. And, you know, as we've done in the story. But that would have happened on the Tuesday, not the Monday. But she does say that she returned back on the Tuesday and she met Reg Christie that day. And Reg said... Uh, uh, when she said where's Beryl she said oh she isn't here she's gone away she said that that was on the Tuesday but that can't have been on the Tuesday uh, when she came back the first one must have been on the mon on, on the Tuesday not the Monday if that makes sense sorry so um yeah so uh, even with people's witness statements things are always to cock things are always kind of not exactly right but coots at it again Always, it's all he does. It's all he's done all morning. Oh, little bastard! Ah, <laughs> uh, well, as long as he's having a good life. Um, so I, I thought I'd throw this in at the end. Um, this is the the full confession of Timothy Evans. Obviously, the bit that I did at the start, I I put in as much of the evidence as possible, but for the speed of the narrative. I've kind of edited it down or kind of abbreviated some stuff in there because he, he waffles a bit. So I thought what I'd do is I'll give you give you as near as the full statement as possible. When I recorded this down, this was an abbreviated version as well. So this is because it took it took him two hours to do this statement because that had to clarify a lot of things. So this is the original statement that uh, Timothy John Evans made at Merthervale Police Station between 3.10pm and 5.10pm on the 30th of November 1949. Um, I'm not going to do the voice. <laughs> um, about the beginning of October, my wife Beryl Evans told me she was expecting a baby. She told me she was about three months gone. I said, if you're having a baby, well, if you've had one, another won't make a difference. Then she told me she was going to try and get rid of it. I turned round and told her not to be silly that she'd make herself ill. Then she brought herself a syringe and started syringing herself. Uh, she then said that that didn't work, and I said, I'm glad it didn't work. See, this is why I've edited it down. Uh, then she said she was going to buy some tablets. I don't know what tablets she bought, because she was always trying to hide them from me. She started looking very ill, and I told her to go and see the doctor, and she, she said she'd go when I was at work. But when I got home, I asked her if she'd gone, and she said she hadn't. You can see why I'm editing. Uh, on the Sunday, this was actually the Monday, uh, there's my note in there it's just he got his days wrong but people do people people often do get their days wrong uh, 
on the Sunday morning. She told me that if she couldn't get rid of the baby, that she'd kill herself and her baby Geraldine. I told her she was talking silly. She never said any more about it, but when I got up... No, that was right. Huh? But when I, I know, when I got up on the, on the Monday morning, which was actually the Tuesday morning, uh, to go to work, she said she was going to see a woman to see if she could help. Who the woman was, she didn't tell me. Uh, and that if she wasn't, wasn't in when I came home, she'd be at her grandmother's. Then I went to work and loaded up my van and went about my journey. At nine o'clock in the morning, so this is the this is the section here where he talks about meeting the the man who gave him the special uh, abortion liquid. That's pretty much as is as I did earlier on. I've just edited it down for time. Um, let's run for it. Okay. After I finished work, I went home. That would be between seven and eight. When I got to the house, I took off my overcoat and hung it on the peg behind the kitchen door. My wife asked me for a cigarette, and I told her there was one in my pocket. Then she found the bottle, and I told her all about it. Uh, then I had my tea and sat down and read the papers and listened to the wireless. We went to bed about ten o'clock. I got up in the morning as, as usual at six, six, ugh, at six o'clock to go to work. I made myself a cup of tea and, uh, and made a feed for the baby. I told her then not to take that stuff, and when I went in and said good morning to her, uh, sorry, uh, I told her not to take that stuff when I went in and said good morning to her and went to work. That was about half past six. I finished work and got home about half past six in the evening. I then noticed that there were no lights in the place. I lit the gas and it started to go out and I went into the bedroom to get a penny and I noticed the baby in the cot. I put a penny in the gas and went back into the bedroom. Then I saw my wife lying on the bed. I spoke to her, but she never answered. So I went over and shook her. I could then see she wasn't breathing. I went and made some food for my baby and fed my baby and sat up all night. Between one or two in the morning, I got my wife downstairs in front, through the front door. Obviously, this is a communal front door and communal hallway. Uh, I opened the drain outside, which is on Tellington Place in front of 20 other houses. Um... I opened the drain outside my front door, that is 10 Rillington Place, and I pushed her body head first down into the drain. I closed the drain and went back into the house. I sat, I sat down by the fire smoking a cigarette. I never went to work the following days. I went and got my baby looked after. Then I told my governor uh, where, I, where I worked I was leaving. He asked me the reasons and I told him I had got a better job elsewhere, obviously more lies. I had my cards and my money that afternoon, so obviously cards is your um, your uh, unemployment cards. Or, or like, I think we, we call it a P45 now, isn't it? I had my cards and my money that afternoon. Uh, then went to see a man about selling my furniture, which would be Robert Hooker, who we'll get onto next week. Uh, the man came down, had a look at it and offered me £40 for it. So I accepted the 40 he told me he wouldn't be able to collect the furniture until Monday morning. In the meanwhile, I went and told my mother that my wife and baby had gone for gone the holiday. I stopped in the flat until Monday. Then I caught the five to one train to Paddington, uh, and I come down come down to Merthyrvale, and I've been here ever since. That's the lot. To that is the first statement that Tim Timothy Evans gave to our to the police. Uh, obviously we're going to more detail into what happens after that next next week uh, so we can kind of wrap that up and then we can get back to uh, more about more about the life of uh, life of Reg because I think we're starting to get a real feel of who he is now oh dear yawn that's what I'm trying to do with this ca this case is tell you the victim story but also at the same time feed you kind of information so you learn more about Reg so it's not just like a chronology of Reg Christie was born on the blah, 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 which is fine, but it doesn't always tell you everything you need to know. Whereas with, with, especially with a serial killer, it's better to see them at work. I think it's better to see them how they interact with their victims. That's the kind of the important thing, and then you can kind of work through it and work out what they're like as a person and uh, yeah, what they're all about. So, um, so that's it. I hope you enjoyed that. That was fun. Uh, so part five uh, of. The other side of town will into place next week <gasps> halfway through that series lovely jubbly so this will um 
looking at the dates now, this will bring Murder Mile up until the end of January. Uh, so we'll have all the episodes up until the general end of January. Then I'll do a uh, in the final week. I'll do a kind of a, a highlights package and a, just a fun extra mile episode. And I'll do uh, uh, the omnibus edition of the other side of Ten Rillington Place. So if you want to listen to it without the all the waffle in it, uh, I can do that'll be that you can just listen to it in one constant stream you don't have to switch between episodes literally i think i will try and get i can get a maximum of five episodes per per um podcast so i'll do that um yeah and that'll take us up to uh january and then uh february no murder mile and we'll return sometime in the middle of march i think because i need i need to take a good amount of time off to uh research and recover and do some boat stuff so that was good Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I will... Oh, it's happened again, isn't it? I don't know how to end this. don't know how to end. don't know how to end. I'm just going to press stop. That'll do it. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.